Good morning, church. Good morning. There we go. Man, it's so good to be here with you and to worship God with you and to now sit underneath his word with you. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. It's just wonderful to be a worship our great God and Savior alongside of you. Uh, my name is Stuart McCrath, the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors and just get to walk this life of, of discipleship with you uh, together. We're in the midst of a series going through Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. So we're in Galatians. We're in chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 24 this morning. And uh, just, just to, to do the brief review, we, we've, we've had the joy of, of, of hearing Paul teach us about uh, the doctrine of justification. How is it that, that rebels against the holy God, how can rebels become uh, right? How can they stand right and innocent before the holy God of the universe? And they, they, by grace, by faith in Christ alone. That's how that happens. We experience freedom by faith. And then we, we came to the end of chapter four, we're now in chapter five, and, and what we're getting now is instruction from Paul on how to actually live like justified believers. What, what does that actually mean? look out like. Um, we're going to be talking this morning about uh, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, I want to encourage you with, with uh, two books that might uh, assist you further in thinking about these topics, both written by the same author, Jerry Bridges. One is The Fruitful Life, and the other is Respectable Sins. Th th those sins that we think that are uh, not so egregious, maybe they're more respectable and not worth our considerations. And so we got, we got respectable sins and the fruitful life. I'm actually going to have these with me at the door as you leave. Uh, first come, first serve. So I got them for free here uh, after the service, whoever wants them. All right, so Galatians 5, 19 through 24, let's, let's read our passage. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So last week we were introduced to this spiritual war that is occurring within every spirit-filled, justified believer. We, we read the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh because these are opposed to each other. They're at war to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, we're, we're in the midst of a spiritual war where the battlefield is within us. It's within our hearts. Jesus says in the gospel that, that out of our hearts comes what Paul articulates as the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. You see, the gospel puts us on this, this collision course with these things, and it is war. What is the flesh? The, the, the flesh, when, when, when put in opposition to the spirit, is not referring to our, our physical bodies, but to the sinful nature, the, the part of our hearts which is not yet renewed by the spirit. And the spiritual war lies within the fact that we have been given a new nature, 
and a new heart that now reigns and rules over us with new desires that are diametrically opposed to the old sinful nature that still remains. We're in a war. And listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins, nor gift us the Holy Spirit for us to be content with our sin. Listen, Jesus certainly, certainly saved us right where we were at. We didn't have to clean ourselves up in order for him to save us. But Jesus is also not content, though, to leave us where he found us. Jesus gives us his total grace for our total need for change. And there's grace in this passage. There's grace in this passage for this war. Paul's main point here is that the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit reveal that spirit-filled, justified Christians are in a spiritual war where they have already in Christ crucified the flesh. All right, well, let's, let's get into it. Let's look at works of the flesh, 19 through 21. And then when we seek to apply, we'll also look at 24, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, let's, let's talk broadly about the works of the flesh and, and then also this list in particular. Three things. The, the works of the flesh are anti-God, self-centered, and are therefore necessarily anti-relational. Look, sin and the sin that remains in our hearts is geared towards isolation, selfishness, division, hatred, and the like. There's, there, there's a reason, and we'll see, there's a reason why the majority of this list is about social sins that break down community life. Second observation, this is not an exhaustive list. Paul says, and things like these. There, there are other works of the flesh that, that we need to be on the lookout for. And then finally, three, there's an organization to this list. There are four categories. You'll see them on the list. You'll see them in your sermon notes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll make mention of them as we, as we go through um, these, these, uh, this list. All right, well, let's run through the categories. We'll pause uh, here and there uh, to kind of do a deeper dive on, on some of these categories. All right, so the first three categories are sexual sin. Sexual immorality refers to any sexual misconduct outside of the bounds of a biblically defined covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So, adultery is just one form of this. But, but so too is premarital sex, homosexual sex, engaging with pornography, any sexual conduct outside of God's gracious bounds of the biblical covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. Impurity. Impurity refers to the, the general defilement from any kind of sexual sin, whether thoughts or actions. Finally, sensuality gets at the idea of unbridled, shameless sexual lust. 
All right, the next two deal with failure to worship God rightly. Idolatry refers to the worship of false gods. An idol is anything. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in our hearts and in our lives. Look, we, we, we don't worship wooden statues anymore. But, but you know what we do? An idol is anything that you love more than God, trust more than God, fear more than God, desire more than God. That is your idol. And the deception of the idol is that more often than not, what we desire in and of itself is, is actually a good thing. Like our, our children to obey us. Our, our, our spouses to respect us, to get the promotion, to find a spouse, to provide for our families. These aren't bad things. The breakdown occurs when then these, these ostensibly good things become the ruling interests in our lives. When these ostensibly good things are allowed to become the, the, the ruling gods in our lives that we will submit to and do anything for. I mean, if we're honest, we'll even sacrifice things on the altar of these idols to get them. Right? If, if, if your functional God is to get the promotion and have your boss think well of you, we're, we're willing to submit, we're willing to sacrifice spouse, family, health, maybe integrity. We all have idols that we can be tempted to worship. What are yours? Let's, let's, let's ask some questions. Let's think about this. From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? What is your identity wrapped up in? What is, where, where does your mind instinctively drift in the mornings? The, the, the answers to these questions may well be your idols. And look, if God is revealing sin, he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to give grace for change, grace to repent and turn away from your sin, your idols, your ungodly desires, and to turn to him once again and to love him and to trust him, to desire him more than anything else. All right, the second category that deals with failure to worship God rightly is, is sorcery or witchcraft. In the Greek, sorcery can metaphorically describe the false hopes and uh, entrapments, the, the false desires of the idols that we seek to worship. It's sort of the, the spell, if you will, that these idols cast over us. All right, the next eight categories, eight categories, the majority of this list are social, social sins that destroy relationships. Now, within these eight categories, there's actually um, a structure as well. Four are destructive attitudes, and four describe the results of those attitudes in relationships. Enmity. Enmity speaks to the hate in our hearts that lies at the root of our strife, of our fighting, it values self. 
It values self so much that it can become enraged when someone, when something, someone threatens what we are worshiping. Jealousy, this is the sinful fear that something you possess, physical or of character or of, or of perception, this is the sinful fear that something you possess is gonna be taken away from you. Rivalries or selfish ambitions. This is, the, this is the selfish heart that is willing to walk over, walk on others for selfish gain. And envy. This is desiring or coveting what others have. Jerry Bridges said, usually there are two conditions that tempt us to envy. First, we tend to envy those with whom we most closely identify. And second, we tend to envy in them the areas we most value. Right, parents may envy parents whom they perceive to have more obedient children than them. Friends may envy friends uh, who they believe have a better or more prestigious job or role or rank. The list goes on. And in the midst of our envy, we can even subtly think it's justifiable because we've, we've been done wrong and God's withholding. But, but the reality is envy is rooted in the sense that we falsely believe that God is not good because he hasn't given to us like the next person. And of course, things can get ratcheted up pretty quickly when we believe we even deserve better than the next person. Oh, now God's not even, he's unjust. You're not even giving me what I do, what I'm due. Sadly, envy can bring bitterness towards those we're envious of. It can lead us to think sinfully about those who appear to have what we want. And these destructive attitudes, if not rooted out of our hearts, will lead to relational disaster. The other four categories describe the destructive results of those attitudes and relationships. There's strife or discord. This is the result of the enmity, the hate within our hearts. There's fits of anger or rage. This is, this is uh, what we might call as constantly losing my temper. You know, sadly, anger is often and at its most simplest sense a result of, of us not getting what we want. You know, I mean, if we're really honest, we're just children. We're just children bickering over the fact that we're not getting what we want, and I'm angry about it. Right? I mean, we can lose our temper when we don't get what we're envious for. We can get angry when what we're jealously holding on to is, is threatened. What about you? What, what, what is it that if, if you don't get that you'll get angry about? Dissensions and divisions, these both relate to the sinful fragmentation amongst people. These tend to occur when we put ourselves over and against others. Oftentimes, this is when we make secondary issues and preferences more important than the primary issues of love and unity. All right, the last two categories of the works of the flesh are related to substance abuse, drunkenness, and orgies. They're linked together. You know, orgies, 
which is probably not the, the best translation for our, our Western American ears. Uh, uh, carousing or, or maybe even just simply wild partying is what Paul is talking about. Pastor Tim Keller says this, one of the works of the flesh is addiction, overindulgence to pleasure-creating substances and behavior. All right, so that's works of the flesh. Uh, and, and then what we find in the middle of verse 21 is, is a warning that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, now Paul is not saying that sinners don't go to heaven. No, what Paul is saying is that unrepentant sinners don't go to heaven. It's really interesting. Maybe like your Bible, uh, yours has a little footnote uh, with that word do. This word do does not mean do once, but in the Greek, it's to make a practice of doing such things. Those who habitually and unrepentantly do such things will not, it is a promise, inherit the kingdom of God. You see, we are to not make a practice of sinning. We are to put to death the works of the flesh. So let's apply five ways, five ways from this passage uh, to put to death the works of the flesh. Uh, you got them sketched there and outlined on your notes. Five ways. Number one, living in the good of the gospel. Verse 24 says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, past tense, the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, the old, the old sinful nature no longer reigns and rules over us. It has been rendered powerless over us, but its presence still remains. You, you, you see, its only strategy to make war against us is to have us believe the lie that it still has power over us when it does not. But, but we kind of get that, don't we? That, 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 that struggle to be tempted to, to believe in the lie. Like when we're struggling with a this specific pattern of sin over and over and over again, it's, it, it can be tempting to fall into the trap, into the lie that in fact that sin has mastery over you. You are not free to say no to it and it controls you. But the truth is it has already been rendered powerless and we've already been freed from its slavery. You see, the biblical principle here is that we fight against an already defeated enemy. And you know, the reality is, what's really interesting is that God's people have always been fighting against already defeated enemies. Let, let me illustrate this for you. Joshua chapter one, God's people are about to enter into the promised land and God says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon you, I have given you. Do, do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God was with his people. And in the mind of God, the battles that lie ahead were already victorious. They were already victories. They'd already been won because the, the enemies that lie ahead were already defeated in the mind of God. And, and what's more, the land was already theirs as well. All they had to do let me use some familiar language. And, and let's start seeing the parallels between God's people's, their story of old and, and our story of now. All they had to do was trust and obey. All they had to do was trust and obey. 
trust that God had given them the victory and obey God with what he told them to do. One, one of the things that they were to do in obedience to God's promise of victory was to thoroughly cast out uh, God's enemies uh, from the land. And, and this was God's wisdom to do this. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it in our own lives. We too are told to cast out sin and there's repercussions when we don't think about it. They were told to cast out God's enemies from the land. It's wisdom from God. And the reason was if God's people allowed their enemies' presence to remain, they would be tempted to forsake God and to worship the false gods of their enemies. So look, here's how all this played out, right? If God's people would trust in him, no matter how big, how strong the enemies were, defeated. If God's people did not trust in God, their enemies, no matter how weak, how small, would defeat them. What's more, God's people, God's people did not obey God all the way but allowed some of God's already defeated enemies to remain in the promised land. And as a result, and as a result, they worshiped their false gods and even became enslaved to what was an already defeated enemy. Friends, this is our story too. We're called to live in the good of the gospel, what God has already accomplished for us, which means we also are to trust that God has already won us the victory in Christ over our sin. And it also means that we are to obey him by removing the remaining already defeated enemy of sin from the battlefield of our hearts. We are called to trust and obey We are called to trust that God has already won us the victory in Christ, and we are called to obey God by removing sin from our hearts. So, what does it look like to remove the remaining sin in our hearts? Number two, depend on the Holy Spirit's enabling power. Verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Not gratifying the desires of the flesh is now possible because its passions and desires have already been crucified. And what's more, the Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit lives within us. Friends, the, the enemy is defeated, but we must, in the strength that the Spirit provides, cast out the enemy. We need his help. Tangibly speaking, tangibly speaking, I think this looks like at least two things. Leaning into the Holy Spirit's convicting work over our sin and two, asking him for his help to say no to the things that we should say no to. Guys, it looks like when he's convicting us of our sin that we lean into that and don't push it away. And then it looks like asking him for help to say no to the things that we should say no to. Three, recognize your responsibility. Laziness won't work. And the strength that the Spirit provides, we must obey the command to walk by the Spirit. In humility, we must continually yield to the Spirit's empowerment if we want to not gratify the desires of the flesh. Four, 
identify specific sins. Y'all, this passage is a gift. This passage is the gift of, of clarity and of vision for the enemy, right? It's, it's, it's hard to kill the enemy that you don't see. And, and what God is doing here is, is giving us grace to see our enemies so that we can put them in the crosshairs. Let me encourage you to take this as an opportunity. Let me encourage you to take this as an opportunity to think critically, ask God for more grace, to have more conviction, more clarity, so that you can put to death the sin that remains. Listen, we cannot make peace with the things in ourselves that both crucified Jesus and that he crucified for us. Finally, number five, get outside help. Seeking to please the Lord and become more like Jesus is a community project. We need outside help. Walk by the Spirit is a, is a, a command given in the plural, not, not to an individual, but it's given to the community, as actually most of the commands in the letters are. Here's why. Here's why. Because it's given to the community to obey together. Look, there's clearly individual responsibility, but there's also communal engagement in obeying the command. You see, in the war of the spirit versus the flesh, lone rangers are dead rangers. We need each other. We were created. We were created and then recreated in Christ to be in community and to receive outside help. Guys, this isn't a result of the fall. This is a result of creation. First and foremost, we were created to need outside help from God. But, but even then, before the fall, God said that we need outside help from each other. Adam was given Eve. Listen, when we receive help from each other, this is important, when we receive, when we receive, when we invite help from each other, we are leaning into the way in which we were created. And you see, when we resist help, when we push it aside, we are leaning into our fallenness. Sin isolates. But God, through the gospel, is bringing us together for our good and his glory. All right, let's transition. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. Let's read verses 22 through 20. Three, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right, let's reread. Uh, oh, we just did that. What we're going to do now is talk broadly like we did about the works of the flesh. We're going to talk broadly now uh, about the fruit of the Spirit. Three things again. The fruit of the Spirit is the exact opposite. The exact opposite the works of the flesh. They are God-centered, others-focused, and deeply relational. Jerry Bridges says this, the fruit of the Spirit flows to us from our union with Christ, and it flows beyond us to bring us into fellowship with others. We've got to remember what, what set the stage for these verses in, in, in verses 13 through 14. 
Paul wrote, through love, serve one another. Because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then after he talks about the, the, the fruit of the spirit and the, and the good that they are for the community. He says this in, in chapter six, one, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The fruit of the spirit is primarily for the good of the community. The fruit of the spirit is for the good of the spiritual community too. The fruit of the Spirit is not virtues we can manufacture on our own, but is divine fruit produced by the work of the Spirit in our lives. So let's make this plain. Patience is not a virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Look, there's a reason why it's unnatural and, and it's not our impulse to show kindness towards those who are mistreating us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It is otherworldly. Finally, three. This is also not an exhaustive list. Um, for, for instance, uh, humility and compassion. There'd be two examples of, of other uh, 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 fruits, uh, fruit of the Spirit. All right, well, well, Paul gives us nine expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. With the time we have left, we're going we're gonna to sink our, our teeth into two. I want to do a deep dive on two, and, I, and, and, and the hope is, is that we're going to see that the fruit is ultimately for the relational good of the community. All right, love. Love. In the Greek, this love is agape, when in trying to entrap Jesus, the Pharisees asked him this question. He said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answered, you shall agape the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall agape your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You, you see, for Jesus, love of God and love of neighbor is inseparable. Inseparable. In other words, in other words, Jesus is saying you can't rightly love your neighbor without loving God, nor can you rightly love God without loving neighbor. Jesus said this to his disciples, by this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have agape for one another. One of the distinguishing marks of a disciple of Jesus is their genuine, Christ-like, selfless love for others. Well, what does this look like in practice? Well, instructing a, a community of believers on, on how to live together well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, y'all know where I'm going. This is instruction for the community of believers to live well together. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not agape, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give away all I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not agape, I gain nothing. Then Paul goes on to describe what agape looks like. You know it. Agape is patient and kind. 
Agape does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape, agape love is not primarily a feeling because it always expresses itself in action that is directed for the good of others. What's more, it seeks the well-being of others with, without any expectation of something in return. Agape love is an otherworldly love because it only comes from the God who is agape love. And, and, and so, and so when, when this type of love is on display in, in our communities and in, in, in our relationships, it points it points our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our unbelieving family members, our children who, who may not be believers. It, it points them to the reality of the God who is agape love. It points them to the reality of the God who loved us by sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins and then who loved us by putting us in community together for our good and his glory. As I've been working through this, and as I'm even saying this to you now, I, I believe that by God's grace this describes me, but in very imperfect ways. I, I've taken this, I want to encourage you to do the same. I've taken this as an opportunity to, to ask the questions of what, what hinders me? What hinders me from, from loving? I mean, I, I know in its most basic sense, it's selfishness. Oh, but I'm, I'm afraid that it's far more nuanced than that. I would encourage you to take this as an opportunity yourself. I've been thinking about 1 Corinthians 13, something tangible to look at the expressions of what love looks like and to ask myself, just what, what hinders me? So I'm asking questions to others and trying to get input. We, we, need, we need outside help, right? I would encourage you to do the same. I, I, let, let me also encourage you that there is grace for change. I, I'm not, certainly I'm not gonna repeat um, the, um, uh, how to put the death of works to the flesh that we talked earlier, but I do, I do just wanna remind you that there is that there's forgiveness of sins and that there is grace to love like Jesus. Agape love is for the relational good of and the building up of community. Two, gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness involves humility and the manner in which we thoughtfully care for others. Once again, I'm not speaking to you here as the gentleness expert, as the fellow brother who needs more grace. But let's take a look at this. Gentleness involves humility. C.S. Lewis has pointed out that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Lewis says that as you consider conversation with a humble person, he says this, probably all that you will think about them is that they seemed a, a cheerful, intelligent chap, British, who took a real interest in what you said to them. 
In other words, a, a, two things. A, a truly humble person won't, won't be thinking about whether they are or are not humble because they won't be thinking about themselves. They'll be thinking about you. The truly humble person is others-focused. See, gentleness necessarily involves humility because if we're not humble, we will not rightly care for others. One definition of gentleness is it displays a sensitive regard for others and is careful never to be unfeeling for the rights of others. To have this kind of sensitive care and regard for others, it requires humility of heart. Jerry Bridges extremely helpful in thinking through what gentleness looks like. So here's a mix of summation and quotation. Gentleness should include actively seeking to make others feel at ease in our presence. Gentleness will demonstrate respect for the dignity of others. When necessary, it will seek to change a wrong opinion or attitude, but by humble persuasion and kindness, not by domination or intimidation. Gentleness avoids blunt speech and an abrupt manner. Instead, it seeks to answer folks with sensitivity and respect, ready to show consideration. When gentle Christians find it necessary to give correction, they also seek to give words of consolation and encouragement. Gentle Christians will not feel threatened by opposition or resent those who oppose them. Instead, they will seek to gently instruct, looking to God to dissolve the opposition. Finally, gentle Christians will not degrade or belittle or gossip about others who fall into sin, but will instead grieve and pray and, if appropriate, pursue seeking to restore gently. And of course, Jesus is our example of this. We, we have much to learn. In profound humility and being able to sympathize with our weaknesses, Scripture says he was tempted in every respect as we were yet without sin. In humility and being able to sympathize, he could thoughtfully care for us when he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's in part Christ's compelling gentleness that is calling us to come to him. It is in part because of his gentleness. We know that Jesus won't shame us or mistreat us if we come to him. But instead, he will tenderly care for us. The question I've been asking is, Do I exude a compelling gentleness that says, I'm a safe place where you won't receive shame or mistreatment when you come to me for biblical care, encouragement, or even correction? Am I a safe place where you, won't, where you know that you won't receive shame or mistreatment 
This was a, uh, I was the preacher, so I got to pick which categories we talked about. <laughs> so this was intentionally strategic to look at these two and look at gentleness. In conversing with people who love me dearly, dearly enough to be honest with me, I'm, I'm starting to realize that uh, um, I can speak too bluntly at times. I'm a little too forthright. And depending on the person, depending on the situation, it's not a compelling example and witness of gentleness. And if that's you and you've experienced that from me, please forgive me. I'm also eager with God's help to, to learn. I want to know more about this so that I can kill this thing. And so I'm, I'm asking you to, to trust God and, and uh, trust that the Spirit will give me help, but I'm asking if that's you, would you also consider coming to me? I, I'd love to be able to know more about that, to be able to just listen um, and to be able to specifically um, ask for your forgiveness. Maybe you're also being convicted by your lack of gentleness. So let me encourage you the way I've been encouraging myself. There is there's grace here. God wants to help us. He is eager to help us to repent, to seek forgiveness with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to, and to pursue gentleness. Gentleness is for the relational good of and the building up of community. At the end of verse 23, we read, against such things, the fruit of the Spirit, that is, against such things, there is no law. We didn't receive the Spirit by works of the law, nor can we produce the Spirit's fruit by any sort of human effort on our part. The Spirit produces His fruit in our lives by divine grace through faith. Look, we should actively pursue growth in love and joy and peace, etc. We need to put off the works of the flesh and put on the fruit of the Spirit, but we do so in dependence upon the Spirit's enabling power. It is His fruit to produce in our lives. I, I hope that you received grace from this passage like I did. There's a lot of grace in this passage, and I I hope this was uh, edifying and encouraging. Let, let's, let's say, the la let's, lastly, let's, let's just re remind ourselves of the main point of this passage. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit reveal that Spirit-filled, justified Christians are in a spiritual war where they have already, in Christ, crucified the flesh. So, church, let's, let's pursue Christ-likeness together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, your kindness and um, sovereignly keeping this passage 
um, in our Bibles so that we would have it, so that we could come to know you and know what you've done for us in Christ and what you're calling us to do and be by your grace. Father, thank you for the gift of clarity and of vision to see the things that are not like Jesus within us. Thank you for the help that you want to give us to pursue um, removing off the battlefield of our hearts this already defeated enemy. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be humble. Um, help us to um, be eager to receive observations from people. Uh, Lord, so we can, so we can kill sin. So we can become more like Jesus. Help us to live in community together well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.